Well, it's a joy to be back at it again, even if it's in an unusual manner. I think, I, I, I believe, I know that God's ordinary means of grace in the corporate worship are His primary means by which we grow as Christians. And I, I know that I personally feel dry and thirsty at this point. And one of the symptoms of that is that you don't, you're not aware that you're dry and thirsty. And so I hope that this refreshes our uh, sensation of thirst and that we can uh, be refreshed. And so um, it's a joy to be able to bring God's word this morning. And uh, let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Our Father, we do ask that you would refresh us by uh, your word preached this morning. And we have been without your means of grace in this corporate setting for such a long time. And surely we are thirsty and hungry. So we ask that, that by your spirit, uh, that your spirit would accompany your word this morning and that our souls would be satisfied. And it's in Christ's name that we ask. Amen. I was telling Michael this, this message, which is a two-part overview. I was going to do a one-part overview, but it, it became too much. I was going, going to... Uh, actually do an overview of, of Galatians 1 through 3 as we finished Galatians 3 last. Um, even before all this started, I thought it'd be good to go back and sum it up. But now I think it's especially needful at, with the book like Galatians, especially because it is an argument that is sequential that we can follow Paul's thought through. So as we begin chapter 4 in a couple of weeks, I want us to have a foundation of what came before. And so I was telling Michael, this is basically the biblical foundation of what he just talked about in Sunday school historically. Um, this is basically the same subject from another angle. And so it's that's always fun in the providence of God. So you recall that in Galatians, the book was written by the Apostle Paul um, to the Galatians who are Gentiles in the region of, of modern-day Turkey um, under pressure from a Judaizing heresy. That is a heresy that that promoted the continued use of the Mosaic uh, traditions and laws and, in fact, required those, it seems, for salvation or for justification, such as circumcision, probably food laws and the like as well. And so he, Paul is, of course, writing to refute this heresy and also to proclaim the gospel and the gospel's implications to this this congregation or group of congregations in this region. Um, so as we're going to overview um, chapters 1 and 2 this morning, and, and I think Galatians 1, 6 through 12, as we won't be able to read the whole of 1 and 2, um, Galatians 1, 6 through 12 is a good summary of, of the point that Paul's making in these two chapters. So we'll read that together. If we, you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Galatians 1, 6 through 12. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. So, uh, the most natural, basic human question, if we're honest with ourselves, is how can we have peace with God? That's how Paul begins the book in uh, verses 1 through 5. And, and most answers take the form of an instruction manual. Um, but the Bible's answer to that question comes more in the form of news. <laughs> good news. We know that the word gospel means good news. So, uh, often we, he- we get instruction manual answers but the gospel is a news answer. Now to read a piece of news effectively, you have to be able to analyze two things. You have to analyze the source and the content of that news. Thus far, chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been focusing really on these two items, defending the credibility of his source material, if you will, and proving the reliability of the content of his message. And uh, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go over these two basic points, and you'll see them in the outline I gave to you. Uh, by way of review of Galatians 1 through 3, uh, number 1 in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's source and reliability as a messenger. And the application there is is that to reject Paul's gospel is to reject Christ's gospel. They're one and the same. And then in chapter 3, he's proving the veracity of the content of his message. And, And the application there is that to reject Paul's gospel is to reject God's promise or promises. So we'll focus on the first one today. And again, I gave you that outline so you could kind of follow along. I'll just kind of go through each of those text blocks. They basically, for the most part, follow the sermons that I, I've already gone through. Um, so we'll work our way through that outline this morning by way of review. So beginning with that first point, chapters 1 and 2, Paul's source and reliability as a messenger, and, and the application being to reject Paul's gospel is to reject Christ's gospel. And he begins in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, with the greeting, and he opens the letter basically by stating his commission. What's his title and who sent him? In Galatians 1, uh, 1, Paul, an apostle, there's his title, and his commissioner who who sent him, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So I think that's about as good of a credibility um, to prove that you're a good source as about any God sent me. Right? That's about as good as it gets. And not only that, but the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul is God's apostle. 
Now he also opens the letter in these verses with uh, something of the of a preview of the co- content of his overall message. When he says peace, or, or really the message is peace with God by grace through Christ for God's glory. Peace with God by grace through Christ for God's glory. And in three through five, he says grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, of course, this simple statement isn't quite enough to deal with the issue at hand in the Galatian church. There are detractors. That's the reason he's writing the message, is there's people contradicting that basic statement. And so... Um, he will. They're not going to settle for a mere statement of his position on a broad level. He has to prove himself, and hence the rest of the letter. But that's kind of a summary of what he's getting at: peace with God by grace through Jesus Christ. And we should pause and think uh, that this letter gets at the heart of the most important issue we can really grapple with: is how can sinners be at peace with God? And these two chapters deal really with a question that's nearly as important. Um, And in fact, we can't really answer the first question without the second question. And this gets at what Michael was talking about in Sunday school. And that second question is, what is the source of this message, this news of peace with God? That tells us how we can have peace. Is it a reliable source? We need to ask that question first. So right out of the gate, Paul's claim is to be a messenger sent directly from God himself. And that may seem like the most natural thing in the world to us who are Christians, who are used to that kind of talk. And we may take it for granted, but this really is not the normal. There's just a handful of men who have served that role for God. And we should be extremely grateful that we have such a revelation and a reliable revelation given to us as a base from which to build our lives. Now, I think faster than any of his epistles, maybe faster than any other book besides Jude, Paul just jumps in and and hits the issue head on here in Galatians. Um, This is the controversy that sparked the letter in 6 through 9 of chapter 1. Um, I've labeled that another gospel. Paul here, he, he says he's astonished that they are abandoning Christ for a different gospel. A different gospel. His language reveals really how strongly he feels here in 6 through 9. He lays his cards out on the table. He says that a gospel that is not his gospel, that he originally preached, is not Christ's gospel. It's a different gospel. In verse 6, he goes as far as to equate turning to a different gospel with deserting God. That's how serious Paul is about this. And then he goes on to pronounce really two anathemas. Basically, let anyone who preaches a different gospel, who changes this gospel, be damned. And Paul will continue to strike this same nail over and over again for, through the first two chapters. Um, and his gospel is Christ's gospel. That's his point. His gospel that he originally preached is the only gospel because it is Christ's gospel. 
And this really, I think, is, is so practical in our everyday lives, both just as we walk through life and apologetically as we talk to other people. Um, for example, in my life, the question arises in all kinds of circumstances around this question of kind of where do we draw lines? Like, at, at what point is a professing Christian outside the bounds of orthodoxy? That question, for some reason, maybe it's just me and the role I play in the community, but it comes up all the time. Where, where do we draw lines? How do we draw lines? And, and I think the answer is, are, is this person changing the gospel? Is this different from Paul's gospel? Even on a single point, here, circumcision, is it different? You know, Rome, for example, as Mike, Michael spoke about, probably eight or ten different ways they change the gospel, or more, I don't know. Or word of faith, prosperity gospel, changes the gospel. Mormons obviously change the gospel. We know those are obvious people to pick on. But also, we should raise the question, um, does this particular church or group or person that we're discussing uh, change that second point, that second most important question, the one of source. The first being, again, how can we have peace with God? We need to ask ourselves the question, what, what is their understanding of revelation, of God's speaking to us? Because if they, if they change that, the gospel will change inevitably. I've had the same conversation probably three times or more in the last month, kind of revolving around this idea that my, my dear brothers and sisters who have a, a looser view of the revelation of God often tend to have a, a pseudo-relativistic attitude where basically what, what the Bible means to me is what it means to me, what it means to you, it means to you. And we're going to be all very inclusive unless you have a very specific uh, systematic doctrine, set of doctrine. And I, I, I keep pointing out that my concern is it may not be this generation, but the next or the next will take that mindset to its logical conclusion. They, and Unless the grace of God intervenes, they will no longer be Christians in a few generations if there's this prevailing relativism in the back of their minds, this un, uh, disbelief in the, the perspicuity of the revelation of God in Scripture. So our source material impacts our message. And Paul is clear that there is to be one gospel message and one source, which is God. Now, now we, the, the objectors might say, wait, wait a minute. Now, who does Paul think he is? Why does he get to say which gospel is the right one? What gives him the right to speak this day, this way? And Paul's credibility comes uh, from two parts of his personal story that he uh, entails here in these first two chapters. And the first is his, his conversion, and the second is his affirmation by the other apostles. So in chapter 1, verse 10, and through chapter 2, verse 10, we get Paul's story. And the first half of that is Paul's conversion in, in 1, 10 through 24. So in 11 and 12, Paul announces um, his gospel is not really his gospel. It's not man's gospel. He says in 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we know Paul's conversion story. It was so dramatic. This most zealous hater of the way was going around imprisoning Christians. He, he affirmed the stoning of Stephen. He hated Christ. And God, he says, who set him apart for the express purpose of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, knocked him on the ground, and then raised him back up again to preach, to be a preacher of that same gospel which he so hated. And the church, he says, glorified God that God converted a prosecutor into a preacher. Now, Paul's authority in his message did not come from Jerusalem. He makes that clear. Not from the other apostles. He had minimal interaction with them at the beginning. He was going around preaching and he had minimal interaction. And it didn't come from within himself either. Why would he who hated the church invent this, this gospel and begin preaching it? Instead, his gospel comes, he says, directly from Jesus those who would distort the gospel and those who would change its details have to recognize that even a commission from Jerusalem or from the other apostles would not match up to what Paul's saying here, that he was directly commissioned by God. So that's why Paul speaks the way that he does. And that's why he has the confidence that he has is that that. It's not that he thinks that God is so great. He thinks that God is so so great. And that God's word is so true. His, His message comes from Jesus himself. Of course, there were others commissioned by Christ, just like Paul was, other apostles. And, and we have to ask, did their input mean nothing to Paul? And of course the answer is no. Paul is not a lone ranger. He's, he, you know, with a, with a vision from God. He, he, his uh, message fits with the other apostles' message. So in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we have Paul's apostolic affirmation. He says, which is amazing, he preached for 14 years, or 14 years from his conversion, and then he went up. He went ahead and went up to Jerusalem uh, because of a vision from God to uh, make sure, he says, that he was not running in vain. So when he went there, he received full affirmation from these other apostles of not only the content of his gospel, but also his membership among the apostolic band. And they extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, and he, he reports that the apostles added nothing to his gospel. That he, he, he was not running in vain, and they added nothing to what he had already been preaching. And they saw that he was entrusted with the, the gospel, singular, to the Gentiles, even as Peter had been entrusted with the, the gospel to the Jews. Now in this passage, uh, 2, 1 through 10, the specifics of the Galatian heresy start to kind of come out. Um, and we see that it had to do with circumcision and the law and freedom. We see that he, Paul makes a, an important point that even at Jerusalem, they didn't force Titus, who was a Gentile, to be circumcised. Even though there seemed to be some pressure, some who, who were of the circumcision party snuck in and were spying out their freedom that they had in Christ, he says. They wanted Titus to be circumcised, but he says, we didn't submit to that because that would have been to corrupt the truth of the gospel.
once again we see here that for Paul, changing the gospel on this detail of circumcision is tantamount to corrupting the truth of God. We also see in this story the function of Christ's apostles and how they served the church. Um, They were not sources of authority in and of themselves, like so many modern people who would call themselves apostles, inventing uh, revelations to manipulate people. But they did have authority in some sense to confirm Paul's gospel message and to affirm him as a fellow apostle. But their authority comes from the message they preach and the person who sent them. And they're, they're only authoritative insofar as they preach Christ, as this, insofar as they represent Christ. And I think that's why it's so important that we make um, the apostolic testimony front and center in the church. That is the Bible, the New Testament, the whole of the Bible. Ephesians says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What they taught about Christ is the foundation of the church. And to build on any other testimony is to build on a foundation of sand. Now make no mistake, it's important to understand that the apostles themselves are not a final authority over Paul either. Neither is he the final authority over them. And the next story illustrates the point that Christ and his gospel are the final authority. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, we have the confirmation of gospel authority. Um, And the first kind of half of that is in 11 through 14, gospel correction. This famous, famous story where Paul corrects Peter. We, we know the story. Peter was eating with Gentiles in Antioch until people um, who may have frowned on that activity arrived. And then he kind of he separated himself. He cloistered himself among the Jews. And in so doing, he led others astray as well. And when Paul calls Peter out on this, it, it may sound like Paul is kind of trying to establish his own authority above the other apostles, showing, I'm not submitted to those, those characters which is, of course, not the case. But it does show that he's, he's not their puppet. You know, his gospel is not just a, a regurgitation of what they told him to say. But notice how Paul corrects Peter. Your conduct is not in step with my authority. <laughs> no, he says your, con- your conduct is not in step with the gospel. Notice, the gospel is the authority. It is the word of Christ, the King, that confines the consciences of even the apostles. And we need to keep that in mind. It's not our own word or our own thoughts. It's not necessarily the authority of of parents or governments or church officers or pastors. It's not the authority of husbands. Uh, Those are all authorities for us insofar as they represent God and his calling on those positions. But their authority only comes from God. The final authority for us in everything is the Word of God. I want us to notice too, before we move on to the next section, is that the Gospel impacts the practical details of our lives. 
think sometimes we act like the gospel is only a matter of kind of what we believe, you know, about God and sin and, and Jesus, but we don't, it doesn't, we don't understand how it impacts the, the, the minor details of our lives. And we see here that it impacts who Paul sits by at the potluck. <laughs> the most mundane of details, perhaps we might think. Remember, as we walk through life, our walk is either in step or out of step with the gospel. And even the smallest things are our reflections of what we believe about the gospel. So I want us to keep that in mind as we walk through our daily lives, that everything we do has a connection to the gospel truth. Now Paul points out that this need to um, submit to and walk in step with the gospel is a universal need. And that's the next uh, section, 2, 15 and 16. This universal submission to the gospel. He says here, and it's unclear if he's gone back to, to writing to the Gentiles or if this is still a quote, talking to Peter and the Jews at Antioch. Either way, the final audience is Galatia. I think he is still talking till the end of the chapter to the folks in Antioch. But either way, the, the point is the same. But he says... Look, we as Jews, we're, we aren't Gentiles. We know the laws of God. Our, our heritage is the law of Moses. Yet each person who, who claims Christ among us has come to a point of recognizing that our keeping the law, the food laws, circumcision laws, etc., will not suffice to justify us. Each of us has come to Christ by faith for our justification. And that, that's a universal truth. By works of the law, he says, no one, not one person, will be justified. So his point is clear here. If that's true, why are you implying by your actions that you have to obey food laws to be a Christian? Why are you acting like they're necessary? So it is universal. Every last soul has to reckon, reckon with, with this. It is the singular, defined gospel, the, the one that was entrusted to Paul and to Peter, that stands above everyone as the authority. And it doesn't matter how righteous we are, or we may think we are. It doesn't matter that I keep more laws than my neighbor, on average. At least not in the sense of having the ability to have peace with God. Every last soul must find peace with God, not by working for it, but by faith in Christ. And no, no exceptions except for Christ himself. So as we go on to finish up chapter 2, Paul answers a, a likely objection in the last paragraph there. And that is the, the question of licentiousness that always arrives when we talk about grace. If justification is by faith apart from works, doesn't that open the door for sinners to sin more? Or doesn't that make righteousness an unattainable goal? And doesn't that make Jesus a minister of sin? That's the objection. So the objection answered, is Christ a minister of sin? Chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Paul really answers by just kind of flipping the tables on his, his opponents. 
He says in verse 21 that if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Basically, righteousness was never intended to be obtained by the law. It was only through Christ and his death that righteousness was ever made available. Jesus did die. And he says, we died with him. We were given life in him. So in fact, rather than having a ministry of sin, Christ's ministry is the only one wherein, not not even Moses, this is the only ministry wherein righteousness is made available at all. So instead of being a minister of sin, Jesus is the minister of righteousness. Once again, here we see this this thrust that's throughout these chapters. Paul is vehement. There's only one gospel, only one way of justification, one way to obtain peace with God, and that is through faith in Christ, apart from works of the law. He's very clear. Anyone who preaches anything different is preaching a different gospel. Anyone who believes otherwise is believing a different gospel. So that's why Paul here is so adamant, so vehement, that to desert the gospel is to desert Christ. And ultimately, throughout the New Testament, Paul's goal is always to lead us to Christ. We have to remember it's not our grasp of the doctrine of justification by faith alone that saves us. It's not even our faith that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. So we we reach out with our empty hands to lay hold of Christ. We say, "I, I have nothing to offer you but refuse, filth. I need you. I, I, I can't keep the law. I'm at odds with the God of the universe. And that, that horrifies the core of my soul. And I want to be at peace with Him. So save me, Lord Jesus. And he does when we reach out to Him in faith like that. He shed blood for everyone who would believe in Him. He's propitiated the wrath of God for us. His blood paid the debt we owed so that we could be reckoned righteous or imputed with His righteousness and be clean, reckoned righteous before God. So that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Now consider what he says in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. Do not nullify the grace of God. He's very clear throughout these two chapters that those who change the gospel into a works-based righteousness nullify the grace of God. So you can't have grace plus. They distort the gospel of Christ, he says in one seven. They, they spoil the truth of the gospel in chapter 2, verse 5. To reject Paul's gospel is to reject Christ's gospel. To reject Christ's gospel is to go it alone. And and I I don't want to go it alone. (laughs) I need Jesus. I'll wrap up with this story from 1 Samuel. We've been reading 1 Samuel in our family devotions. Chapter 11. um, Saul's kind of just been anointed king, much to his chagrin, it would seem. Um, and, but he's not really acting as king. In this story, he's still out plowing the field with his oxen, his father's oxen. 
And the Amorites, Ammonites uh, besieged the city of Jabesh, an Israelite city, and they asked the Ammonites uh, to make a treaty with them so they won't die. So Nahash, the Ammonite uh, leader, agrees. He says they'll spare the city and make them their servants as long as they can gouge out everyone's right eye. <laughs> so uh, the people of Jabesh say, well, give us a week. <laughs> To think about it, and we're, we'll send messengers. And if no one, we can, can't find anybody to save us, we'll go ahead and agree to that treaty. So, so this message comes to Saul, who's plowing the field with his father's oxen, and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he chops up these oxen and sends them out throughout Israel, and says, "This is what's going to happen to anyone who doesn't show up for military duty." Essentially, he raises an army in this way, three hundred and thirty thousand. And he goes and he crushes the Ammonites. But here's the message that he sends back to the men of Jabesh before uh, they go and destroy the Ammonites. He says, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. That's news, right? That's good news. That's what I'm talking about. It's not an instruction manual. Do these things and we'll come save you. You know, who's the who's the Roman guy who was just a really wealthy? I forget his name, but he would raise these like fire departments, basically of slaves. And if, if a building caught on fire, he would go and say, you know, I'll save your building if you'll sell it to me. If you do this, then I'll save you. That's the complete opposite. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. That's good news. Good news of salvation by grace through faith in the cross of Jesus. That's what our hope is in. Believe that message and you will be saved. Amen.